Hi, I'm Denise Bailey. And I'm Dr. Monica Parker. And you're listening to My Parents Are Now My Kids, a medical doctor's view and daughter's journey through memory loss and other dementias. As a doctor, I'll help you navigate through the often confusing, confounding, and frequently frustrating technical aspects of dementia. And as a daughter, I'll share with you some things I've experienced caring for and loving my parents who both struggled with these disorders. We want you to have hope and to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we'll tell you that sometimes that light is coming straight at you and you just have to get out of the way. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Monica. Hi, Dr. Denise. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. Well, in the past, on one of our past episodes, we talked about the coronavirus and caregiving. And obviously, this virus is still with us here in the United States and around the world. But today, um, we would be remiss if we did not take advantage of having you with us all the time and being the physician and the clinician that you are. So today, we'd like to talk about COVID-19 and the brain and how it affects the brain. Since of course, dementia and Alzheimer's is a neurological brain disorder. So we'd like to talk about COVID and the brain. So I wanna ask you, what are some of the neurological problems associated with COVID-19? Specifically as it relates to confusion, Some of the things that are more important to remember about what Corona-19 can do are number one, makes you more susceptible to strokes. Studies have shown, recent studies, and keep in mind this is a dynamic feature right now. We're still studying, learning more and more about COVID. But people in their 30s and 40s are more likely to suffer strokes. Strokes, as I've mentioned before, are a reason for developing something called vascular dementia. What's the mechanism behind which people are developing and having more strokes? Well, there's something that is affecting the blood's ability to clot related to the corona infection. So increasing blood clots or the formation of many blood clots or emboli is occurring in people who are infected with the coronavirus. And these emboli are like barriers to blood flow. So blood flow is being impaired going to your brain, which means you have a stroke. Other neurologic findings that we are seeing with respect to coronavirus is the development of something called encephalitis, which is inflammation of the lining of the brain and the spinal column, Uh, uh, COVID delirium or confusion. And what encephalitis and confusion and uh, delirium have in common is that people no longer process information well. They seem disoriented. They're confused. They're not processing information. And if you go back to some of the discussions we had before, some of the key definitions for being diagnosed with a dementia are having deficits in two or more brain function. And that is things like deficits in executive function, which has to do with planning and organization, uh, language, memory, learning, visual motor, the ability to um, move things in space, et cetera. But 
getting back to some of the other neurologic signs, and I want to say neurologic signs before I jump just into dementia and how it affects the brain. Loss of smell and loss of taste is a brain function that is affected by the coronavirus um, virus. So can I I say something? You mentioned that. And that was one of the first symptoms, if you will, that was told to the public. If you lose your sense of taste or smell, that could be one of the symptoms of coronavirus. And and in some of the articles that you sent to me and we've talked about, when the virus gets into your nasal passages and that's one way you get infected, that obviously affects your brain. Is that correct? Okay. It, yes. Okay. Your respiratory passages, your certainly your nasal cavities are very close to your brain. You know, right behind your eyes, the, the, the eye socket is a very thin membrane of bone and right behind it is your brain. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, is the virus crossing the blood-brain barrier? So tell me about some other neurological symptoms. Okay, so aside from the encephalitis that we've talked about and the delirium that can go along with the coronavirus infection, we have something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a system of muscle weakness and ultimately paralysis suffered by people who are infected within two to four weeks of a virus. Now, it's previously been associated with the Zika virus, influenza, and now coronavirus. Um, Guillain-Barre can take as long as six months to for to many years to recover from. So, I want to get back to some of the more defining brain dysfunction that may go along with the coronavirus infection. The most important thing for us to think about is, in addition to loss of sense of smell and loss of taste, which we don't necessarily think of as a neurologic problem, but it is, we have seizures, we have increased strokes, which I had alluded to a little earlier because of the coagulopathy or the blood clotting problems that result from uh, the coronavirus. We have increasing fatigue increasing headaches. And headaches can be generic, um, associated with a number of different things, but severe headaches, which may be associated with encephalitis, are a part of the coronavirus infection. Well, let's get a little bit more into delirium, because we talked about delirium and dementia in one of our previous episodes. And it seems like well, let me just ask you, is it true that most patients who have COVID-19 have delirium? No. Okay. I think you will see delirium in extreme cases. Most people who are infected with the coronavirus have mild symptoms that can be safely managed at home, much like you would manage a cold or a mild infection of influenza. You wouldn't go to the hospital. But in those people who have been hospitalized, they are seeing higher incidences of things like delirium. And remember, when we discussed delirium before, delirium is a medical emergency. What is important is to figure out what may be causing the medical emergency. And in the COVID infections, 
there are a number of things that can contribute to the delirium. Uh, we have the um, inflammation of the meninges and the spinal cord and other things that are associated with it. But think fever, um, which is a symptom of infection. Extreme fever, high fever is a risk factor for delirium. Uh, extreme dehydration, uh, as we've spoken about before, which causes electrolyte imbalances. And when you think of delirium, it's an acute confusional state. So maybe 10 hours before you started to see this or 24 hours before you saw this, somebody was thinking, talking, acting, and behaving very rationally and appropriately. When you start to have delirium, you're very confused. Things don't make sense. Um, processing, information processing is not the same. So people are disoriented. Their thoughts are not coordinated. And so when this suddenly happens, we think delirium. If it's something that's been occurring over a gradual long period of time, that's more likely the insidious or subtle onset of dementia, not delirium. Remember, delirium is an acute confusional state, and it is largely regarded as a medical emergency. When you resolve the medical emergency, you get back to being normal, hopefully. Well, you know, I think it's important as this coronavirus pandemic carries on and presently there are nearly 6 million cases in the United States and over 181,000 deaths. And I think it's important for us, even though we talk about dementia and Alzheimer's, to periodically keep checking in and discuss this because when the pandemic first started, you know, we were hearing about symptoms and then they kept adding symptoms and there were new things to look out for. So it, it concerns me and I'm sure others that all of these different symptoms that are happening and you just discussing now about, you know, the brain and strokes and delirium, what are going what are the long-term effects of COVID and would maybe down the road uh, we find out that someone with Alzheimer's and dementia, this may have started with a coronavirus infection. Is that a possibility? That is a strong possibility. In fact, that's one, one of the things that they're studying. But because we're so new into um, the coronavirus and we haven't completed all the studies, we really don't know what the long-term sequelae is. So not knowing what the long-term effects of having a coronavirus infection is going to be, it makes a lot of sense for us to prevent becoming infected. So for those of us who are, all of us, but particularly for those of us who are vulnerable, vulnerable being people over the age of 65, people who are on immunosuppressant drugs, people who are diabetic, people who are hypertensive, people who are anemic, people who are cancer sufferers. We need, we need to avoid crowds. We need to wear our face masks when we're in public. We need to frequently wash our hands. Um, and we need to avoid people and places where we're likely to come in contact with an asymptomatic carrier. And as a uh, grandmother type person, um, 
we want to have, we may have to just avoid our grandchildren because children are asymptomatic carriers. They may not be in visibly infected, but they can infect us and that can be a life-threatening kind of thing. So you want to be very careful about these kinds of uh, connections. Um, I mean, I think socialization and being with your family is really very, very important. And as often as you can, you need to interface with and enjoy their company, but not at the risk of your health. So washing your hands frequently, wearing your face masks, uh, maintaining the social distancing that the CDC has recommended for a long time can go a long way to keeping us from being in a position to become infected. And that's because we simply do not know what the long-term effects of having this infection are. More importantly, we have no cure, no definitive treatment. And as Ambassador Andrew Young said a while ago, he said, you know, y'all are worrying about a polio vaccine and it took them 50 years to develop that. So we don't know that a lot of the vaccines that are being developed are going to be immediately effective. If anything, it's going to be a couple of years before we have a definitive vaccine. Yes, we have quite a few manufacturers who are working on an effective vaccine, but we have them producing things, but we're still in what we call phase three trials, trying to see whether these vaccines are truly going to be effective. So we're in a real strong, I don't know stage. So I don't know how to treat it. We don't have any uh, definitive treatments or cures for corona vaccine, the coronavirus, any more than we have definitive cures or treatments for Alzheimer's and related dementias. So the thing we can do is do everything we can to mitigate likely causes of infection to keep from getting infected in the first place. And on that note, I'm going to be a strong advocate that all of us who are at risk, I'm going to encourage you to get your flu shot. I'm going to also encourage you to get a pneumonia vaccine because people will die from the influenza and people will die from the pneumonia. And you're saying that because having flu or pneumonia on top of COVID is triply deadly? I would say so, but if you keep... Most of the people who have been hospitalized with the coronavirus have people who have suffered from severe respiratory infections and pneumonia, right? Mm -hmm. People who have influenza and have influenza so severely that they are hospitalized also suffer from pneumonia. So the, the point of this is we cannot prevent, we have no definitive treatment we have no definitive preventative for the coronavirus. We do have preventative treatments for pneumonia. We do have preventative treatments for influenza. So it's like pick your poison. Everybody has a thought about how they need to do a vaccine or I don't like pneumonia vaccines. I don't like flu vaccines. I've never gotten any of this, but if having taken a flu vaccine keeps me from getting influenza, which may predispose me to becoming susceptible to a coronavirus infection, I'm going to take the flu shot. I got 
my pneumonia vaccine. And if you haven't had a pneumonia vaccine booster before the age of 65, you want to get something called the uh, Prevnar 13 right now. And next year, you want to get the PPSV 23, which is another um, pneumonia vaccine. But Prevnar 13 is the one that all of us should at least have as a booster to prevent pneumonia. And again, I'm advocating very strongly vaccines for people who are at risk or vulnerable. And those are the people who are on immunosuppressants, people whose immune systems are depressed. That's people who are diabetic, people who are on cancer therapy, people who have end-stage renal disease, people who have chronic lung disease or COPD. Okay. Thank you for that great information, Dr. Monica. You're welcome, Dr. Jennings. See you next time.